Welcome to the film that blew my mind. I'm John Cooper. And I'm Tabitha Jackson, here with another episode of our podcast, exploring a movie that inspires a creator we love. Since his debut feature, Four Sheets to the Wind, hit Sundance in 2007, his work has brought modern indigenous experiences and characters to screen, large and small. His most recent project is the smash hit television series, Reservation Dogs. The show boasts an all indigenous team of series regulars, writers and directors. Beloved for his fresh, authentic portrayals of indigenous teens living on their reservation in rural Oklahoma, the groundbreaking show has been recognized with a Peabody Award, Critics' Choice Awards, and Independent Spirit Award. Its third season is now running on FX. That's right. Today's guest is the one, the only, the legend, Sterling Harjo. <laughs> Sterling Harjo. Hello. Hello. Thank you very hello. much. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. I talked about the the indigenous cast and crew and regulars. And I mean, it's worth saying. It's over and over. Spectacularly. Yeah. It is worth saying over and over because it's a spectacular intervention and innovation uh, in the moving image space in America. And it's it's shocking. It's shocking that it is, but it's fantastic that it is. And I've learned so much. I've learned so much slang from from this. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. A lot of slang. And For now sure. I, I say shit ass all the time now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it just became. I think I used to when I was young, and then it just kind of started yeah. coming back. I love that it's uh, part of the like vernacular now. There was a podcast that I was listening to the other day, and um, and it was like uh. The, there was a person being interviewed on it and they just said what are the, they were like trying to think of what to call someone that was kind of an asshole i think and <laughs> it, 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 and uh, they were like um what is what do they they were like what do they say it was, it was on more perfect and they were like what do they say on reservation dogs oh shit ass he was a shit ass <laughs> i love that it's just like it's there now it's great well i have never called anyone a shit ass but i'm gonna start from today <laughs> yeah, Cooper. you should you are my designated shit ass. I will, yeah. I will take that. <laughs> I will be that for you. So, Mr. Harjo, um, I think it's now now to declare the film that blew your mind. It's it's The Long Goodbye by Robert Altman. It is a film that I just come back to a lot. And the first time I saw it, it was like, I don't know, like I was floating through it. And it's kind of how it's made, but like. It just like struck me. It's funny. It's dark. It's it's sort of everything. Let's go over what the film was for just a second, because a lot of people, it's, it's an unfamiliar film to a lot of people. It's adapted from a Raymond Chandler um, novel. It was released in nineteen uh, what seventy three. It stars young um, Elliot Gould, and it's really about his classic character of Phil, uh, Philip Marlowe, right? As yeah. Marlowe, he's helping his friend out of a jam. He gets caught in a murder plot and leaves Marlowe um, implicated in the crime, right? That's kind of the, the overview. And Robert Altman is famous at the time, even. How old were you when you saw it? Where were you? What were the circumstances? So I had, you know, I was already a fan of Altman. And I really just fell in love with his style of making films. And... But I hadn't watched A Long Goodbye, and I it, I just missed it. Like, I just totally missed it. And it was one of those things where I had bought it, um, and then I never watched it. 
And I was just always like, I'm going to get back to this Robert Altman film and watch it, you know? And I actually opened the DVD and played it during the pandemic. It was during the first year of the pandemic, right in the middle of the first year. And I was, I think I took an edible and like, so I was like stoned <laughs> and like watching this. And like, I had this, like, I had this like back room that was like dark and a giant screen. And I just sat there and watched this film and man, it was like mind blowing to me. I just flo- I like I said, like I was stoned, but I also just floated through. You should be maybe stoned when you watch this movie and you just sort of float through the thing. I was blown away by it. It was funny. It was everything. And I, and I've watched it so many times since actually uh, during the season three of reservation dogs, I went to the local independent cinema. Uh, they sometimes let us have screenings. And so i I invited the crew and I put on the long goodbye and we all sat there and it was really great watching it with a crowd because all of the little humor, you know, like every, it was just like this comedy and everyone was laughing throughout the whole thing. It was really great. Oh, that's fantastic. And that was so period almost too. You know, it has a whole period. Right. Totally. Flavor. Even the, even though the, the original story is said in one like the forties or fifties, this is a modernization of it. On top of that as well. You know, it is 70s, but like if you look at Philip Marlowe and Gould's character, it's like he's from another time period floating through the 70s. And you kind of see, you know, like you see the world through his eyes a bit. And things kind of seem ridiculous. And, and you know, his neighbors are naked and dancing and he's like wearing a suit the whole time. And so it's like he's from this other other period, you know, like he's from the Philip Marlowe period back in the day, and they pulled him into the the seventies. And then it's interesting you you talk about kind of just floating through it because that's what that's what Altman also said he wanted to just just wander through this landscape of weird ass uh, early seventies LA. But through this character who's still, he's driving his massive, I don't know what kind of car it is, but that massive old 40s car, he's wearing a suit. It's so, it immediate, even without the edibles, it kind of catches your eye. <laughs> right. It's like, this is something different. This is right. so weird. He's never phased by those, the girls next door to all 10 of them no. that are always naked. He's just like, hey, right. girls, like, yeah, just like <laughs> oblivious. <laughs> He's like, I'll get some brownie mix for you. Two two boxes of brownies. (laughs) Extra fudge. Right. And then that that it's that scene where he's where he goes out to get them brownie mix, like really close to the beginning. And that's when I realized like, whoa, there's something going on with the soundtrack here. It's the same song, the long goodbye. And it's oh, but now it's it's in his car and now it feels like score. And now it's in the it's the supermarket music. So, Dylan, I was just—I'm always interested when people watch a, a film over and over again. What do you what do you get from repeated viewings of this one? You know, there's certain films that I can do that with, and it's and and I, and I think that the what they all have in common is there's a specific and very sh- strong tone. It's like that tone doesn't shift. I don't feel like I'm like you know in in. 20 minutes in, I don't feel like I'm in a different movie all of a sudden because, you know, because they shot at noon that day and the sun's beating down and the location that they found didn't work and now they're at just some shitty place. Everything in that film feeds into the tone and the, like, vibration of the movie. And I've failed 
upwards as I've been a filmmaker trying to capture that. I think that Reservation Dogs for me was the t- was the first time that I had support financially. It was the first time I got to really go for it. And luckily, like I'd been playing with this tone, this kind of humor and sadness and darkness and light. I'd been playing with it in all of my films, but with Reservation Dogs, it was the first time that I really, I think, nailed it. And um, I come back to that film a lot because there's so much to see. You know, it's almost like something wild for me. Like I can watch something wild, and I, which I almost picked for this, but like I can just see new things and, and, it, and it has this tone throughout. And for me, The Long Goodbye has that. Part of that's the music, but I mean, it's also these amazing like zooms that he's not afraid to do where he's like, you know, it's a lot of like panning and zooming into characters, you know, and then you'll see there's not a zoom, but then it'll come back and there's another zoom. That's part of the reason I think you feel like you're floating through the, through the film, you know, and it, and it doesn't ever let up. It's beautiful. It's really great. And it's kind of, and it's not, it feels like that, that constantly moving camera, it isn't, it doesn't have a destination. It's not to make you see something, but it is, it feels like it's to affect the way you're looking. So you just feel like you're not quite supposed to be there or you're getting, or you're poking your head around the, around the corner, but it, yeah, it never, never stops. Yeah. Cause there's not a lot of close-ups. I mean, you know, you you feel like you're always kind of peering around corners because it is panning and then it is zooming in on things and and you always just kind of feel like you're being let in on this secret world you know which i think is like for a for a noir is such a cool way uh sort of to design the the look of the, of the film yeah and the and the the feeling the feeling that you get is like you're wandering through you're wandering through life and so there is lots of there's lots of stuff going on all at once. There's lots of people talking over each other, and that you're kind of that just to to, to speak to what you're saying about tone, that feeling and all the layers is so it feels like so distinctive to him. I don't know. I didn't I didn't go to film school, so I don't know what's in film history that does that. But it just feels like one of those great seventies experiments again. Back to that song though. The, I don't know if that was totally successful in this. The song <laughs> started to make me a little crazy. Like, oh, there it is again. You know, because it's right, like it's, right. it's 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 even Muzak in the elevator, I think, or or somewhere where he is. Yeah, it's just that same song. Is it in the th- supermarket? Is the doorbell? Yeah, it's in the <laughs> supermarket. I don't think anyone's ever done that. I think think that was an experiment. Like I'm and then I thought, is he trying to make this song a hit somehow? Like, I'm just going to, like, pound it through. I think, I mean, that could be right. Because, you know, his son wrote the theme to MASH. And his son uh, was, like, 11 at the time. And his son made more, more money off MASH than he, than he made off MASH. Um, so maybe he was, like, the money's in the song. Like, let me just hammer this in, you know. But I think, like, I mean, one thing that it does, though, I, like – and this might just be be me being a film nerd and reading into it too much, but like for me, it kind of like creates a paranoia, um, mm. and that's what any that's what kind of any noir you know is like good to have because like it's this conspiracy and it's this it's this uh, this paranoia, and for me, like it's so like the song the same song shouldn't be played this many times over and over from different perspectives, and for me, it's like. 
what is a conspiracy other than these different perspectives and people kind of inventing this stuff. And, and I don't know, like maybe, and I, and I can't tell cause I don't know what the movie would be like without this song, but without the song, I wonder if this, I wonder if it gives the film sort of this low hum of paranoia that like you need in a film like that, you know, maybe not, but. And cause the seventies didn't really lend to that because he's not, he's not really dark and dirty it's kind of like you're in malibu you're in sun you're like it's not the dark the only time you feel sort of like it's a darkness is is the kind of in in the structure where he's running down those kind of cement steps that kind of like the industrial side feeling of los angeles in this but in that crazy time though because i think the darkness thing is the the darkness the paranoia i mean it's kind of peak nixon isn't it it's like oh, yeah. what is going yeah, on right there's, before. there's yeah. this there's this generational gap so i think it was really amazing that to to have this which is now considered a neo-noir you know the original chandler story is set among that that cold war post-war you know coming up to cold war paranoia oh. in the 40s and then to to reset it in the early 70s with the same like weird slightly drug infused what's going on yeah it's like people are coming out of this haze of drugs and i don't know like joan didion's la is what it kind of i think right a lot you know yeah like like this like you know the the promise of the 60s is kind of faded and like what do we have now it's like drug addicts and like a lot of weird shit happening you know yeah yeah i mean i now might be a good time for a to play the clip because what the 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 clip that I'm thinking of with some, you know, smart, weird dialogue by Elliot Gould as he's coming down from that apartment that he lives in and he's got um he's got a tail on him. And maybe we should just listen to that. Yeah, because it's and, not a it's not the cop is it the cops that are tailing him or is it a it's more the gangster yeah. with the money, right? Trying to yeah. find the money. They're keeping an right. eye on him. Yeah, yeah. Let's have a listen. Hey, you know, you know those girls who live next door to you? You know what I think? I think they're a couple of lesbians. That's what I think. Oh, yeah, what makes you say that? Well, look at them up there doing all those contortions together and with no clothes on. Oh, they're just doing yoga. What? Yoga. I don't know what it is, but it's yoga. Yeah, what do they do for a living? They dip candles. What? Yeah, they got a cute little shop over on Hollywood Boulevard. They dip them and sell them. I can remember when people just had jobs. Yeah. Listen, Harry, in case you lose me in traffic, this is the address where I'm going. You Thank look you. great. Harry, I would straighten your tire a little bit. Yeah. Harry, I'm proud to have you following me. So great. <laughs> <laughs> it, he's, it just shows his coolness, doesn't it? He's just yeah. so, like, he takes everything in life as it comes. You know, like, just like, I'm going to deal with this because, because I'm, I'm Philip Marlowe, but also I'm Elliot Gould. You know, it's kind of <laughs> like they're both together. It's great, too, like this this whole, like, like there's something great about a film when – the the society is changing is the backdrop <laughs> right you know right. and it's like yoga what's yoga like, i don't know what it is you know it's like right <laughs> i don't know it's what like, it is you know, i could even think of like no country for old men even where it's like <laughs> you're in west texas and all of these like old um sheriffs and stuff they're saying like yeah it's the dismal tide you know like right. people don't say hello people don't say man or <laughs> sir anymore you know like life's over you know it's like just like gives you this other level of like shit's changing 
And even the gangster is going, when he discovers those girls doing yoga and dipping candles, is like, I remember when people just had jobs. He's like, right. a fucking He's gangster. literally sitting in a party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, re- it's really lovely. You get a sense of the laconic, the la- laconic, which is so great for Marlowe. Marlowe was laconic in the late 40s and now he's laconic in the 70s in a different way. And of course, he doesn't know what what yoga is, but just a a great script there as well. I I do have to come clean on one thing. I had never seen this film before. I I thought I'd seen it. You know, if you see Altman, I go, oh, I've seen everything Altman's done. And then it's just like, wait, did I see this? I think I must have seen a clip somewhere along the line. I had the best time even now. I mean, that's what's great about even us doing this podcast is like, wow, I would have probably never caught up with that film. And it was right. so, so I think it's you for such that. a fun. Yeah. It's such a fun movie to watch. I mean, like, like, like I said, when I was showing the crew and, you know, people had like watched it before, but like just the laughter, I mean, and even like in some of the darkest moments, like there's these great moments where like the head gangster and like Arnold Schwarzenegger is a gangster, like he's there and like, or he's like kind of the heavy. And then there's all these people, and it's just like really funny, like snappy dialogue. And this, this, this head gangster is really charismatic and he's like, you know, really grilling Marlowe. And then like, all of a sudden he invites his girlfriend in because Marlowe's kind of thinking like, you're not a big deal. And then he just like, this is the most beautiful woman, the beautiful thing to me in my life besides my family and my kids and my wife or whatever. And then he just busts a bottle over her face and slices her face open. And it's like all of a sudden the darkest thing it's ever. So ever. Yeah. Yeah. And you feel it. You really feel it. And yeah. Like everyone just pulls back and it's like, Oh my God. Um, it's and cause so then dark. he says, then he says something like, and this is the person I love most in the world. Imagine what I would do to you. It's like, it's yeah. so I, I, was, I was scared for him. I was like, every, every body part, you just sort of like, clinches like yeah i think it's smart because you go through this film where like i said it's fun it's funny there's a lot of great banter you're sort of floating through it and you kind of forget that you're in this crime movie and like it feels like altman needed to everyone to take it very seriously at that point in the film and it's like let's like because it's really stands out like it stands out as this moment in the film and then after that you're waiting on some dark shit to happen again you know like you, you anticipate that so i think it was really smart yeah, it changes the changes the molecules in the film, doesn't it? After and we've just been laughing because there's this slightly vaguely homoerotic scene where all the gangsters are there and the hard men, and that's where declared they're all taking their clothes off. And Arnie, who's uncredited in the film, takes his takes his trousers off. He's got these tiny little yellow Ooh, panties right. on. Yellow like, pants. I call them yellow panties. It's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Right. So when when so you actually did this sort of opposite. It's sort of fascinating because. A lot of people see these films in a theater when they're young and then and then watch the video later. You started from video and then took it to the screen, which I think is sort of fascinating. But one question, and when you showed it to your crew, the people who are working on your show, did you have any ulterior motives in this? Were they not getting something and you wanted them to see it? Like, Yeah, I mean, it wasn't necessarily that they weren't getting something, but like the DP and I... Uh, Mark Schwarzbard, we definitely like started. I had an episode coming later that I'm directing later in the show. 
season three and, and I hadn't, we weren't there yet, but it's very much kind of inspired by Altman. And I wanted to show everyone this Altman film just to get the feel and get everybody kind of excited about it. Um, it, you, it implores some of the, like the, the panning zooms that are the, the sort of tracking zooms that he does. And, and, and cause it's like, it's an episode where there's a lot of characters and like Nashville, I needed ways to kind of give it some texture and not just have it seen here, seen there. This is this group of people and this is this. I needed people, needed it to be alive. And Altman's stuff feels very alive. Just like you were saying, people talk over each other. People are moving in and out of camera. The camera's moving. I needed it to feel alive. So it was kind of setting that up a little bit, just kind of getting everyone in the groove. You know, and then also I'd been, um, I have another show that I'm developing that I had to stop developing because of the strike. But but this show is uh, very much this world. I mean, it's like this world, but now, you know, and so I kind of wanted just to see it on the big screen myself as well, because yeah, uh, yeah. I hadn't got a chance to do that. Will you, just because I'm curious, will you be staying in Oklahoma with this story or will you be? Yeah, this is uh this story takes place in Tulsa. So it's like, you know, it's like always trying to find new ways to do this. And I think like with this noir genre, I mean, you have like, the Long Goodbye, you have um, The Big Lebowski, you've got Inherent Vice, you know, like LA's, they, they've done it well, you know, like it's kind of nice to be able to take it to another completely different place and and investigate like all the weirdness that goes on here. Because it's really weird. I mean, like we have a lot of, my like my daughter won a uh, poet, poetry, she goes to Pratt and she's a poet and it was like her up against all these bigger Ivy league schools and stuff. And they did poetry readings and she won. And one of her poems, what she did was took the headlines from Oklahoma in one week and just made a, wrote a poem about these headlines. And I mean, it's like Bigfoot sightings, like weed farm executions, <laughs> a, 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 a semi truck full of uh, dildos crashed and spilled <laughs> dildos all out on the highway. Like, like she wrote this poem about all of these headlines and, and she won. So like, it's a weird place and it's ripe for this. You know, it's like, uh, we have crazy politicians and everything, you know, and it's right. like, oh, let's get into that. You know? And this is, and this is your place, right? So you, right. so in the same way that LA is its own character in the movies that through your work, uh, Oklahoma has become a has become a character, and I'm interested in um, when you were growing up. What was your access to to cinema or film? Was there a local place? You know, I try to remember what the first movie I saw. I started watching movies on TV first, but the but we had a theater in town that all the kids would go to on Friday night, and it was across the street from the Pizza Hut, and we would. Hit the we would hit the movie theater, run across the highway to Pizza Hut, and we'd hang out and drive people insane there. And so um, this is like early '80s. I don't remember if it was like a if it was when Empire Strikes Back came on, but it was a Star Wars something that I watched, or or they were reshowing Star Wars, the first Star Wars. Like I, like I don't remember what it was, but it was a Star Wars. And so we would just go there every Friday night and that kind of sinks into you, even though we would be loud and insane and not watch half of the movie. Like sometimes it would, it would have to be really good to capture your uh, attention, you know? And I, you know, like I grew up watching 
and you can see this in reservation dogs, but I grew up with like, I had, my dad had a friend who worked for the cable company who, who kind of gave us a box and like hooked us up with like, um, free cable. And so I was watching everything on HBO and Showtime. So it was like, uh, at that point in time, it was like Goonies. It was Stand By Me. It was like The Lost Boys, you know, like all of that, all of those movies are what really kind of like made me kind of have a love for movies. And also, um, Michael Jackson's thriller. There was the making of the thriller that came out. You could buy on VHS and my dad got that and we devoured that. And I, I just was fascinated because I think it was the first time that I, you know, John Landis directed it. You could, it was the first time that I saw that there was like filmmakers behind the scenes and they were making the prosthetics and his, and his like werewolf mask and all of this stuff and the, the choreography. And it was, that was fascinating to me. And I, I, I watched that a lot. But yeah, it wasn't until I didn't know necessarily. I was a big fan of movies. I mean, my dad and I devoured movies together, and and I was never censored. I, I remember like he and I to this day can tell you every line of Platoon, and I and I, I could do that when I was like eleven. Like I was too young, but like we watched everything. And it wasn't until I got to college though, and I had this really great professor at the University of Oklahoma named Misha Nedeljkovic, this Hungarian guy. And he just had this like way of, it was an intro to film and video studies. And he had this way of like his love for cinema was just infectious. Like, like the way he told you about it and the films that he chose to show you, I fell in love. I mean, that's where I started seeing clips from Altman. That's where, you know, he showed me, you know, anything from Tarantino or to, to like uh, Scorsese to, I remember like even like a river runs through it or like dead poet society. And we would talk about directions of the camera and people walk going through different, like, what does it mean when a person goes left to right or right to left on screen, you know? And so like learning that there's a language to it, that's when I fell in love. I think if you take reservation dogs as a whole, um, there's a lot of references because like that's part of what we do. Like our idea of calling it reservation dogs and having that first image of them in suits. It was like I wanted to give homage to because when you're from a small community, that's all you have is yeah. like pop culture references. Yeah, and that's kind of how you end up living your life. And so I wanted to really kind of celebrate that in the show. And with that, we would approach the whole show as like basically like let's look at it like a Tarkovsky film. How would he shoot this? You know, or like, you know, and then like, you know, I mean, I think like some of the biggest references and, and homages throughout the film, I mean, there's Tarantino, but there's also, you know, the Coen brothers, there's Robert Altman. I think there's John Cassavetes, there's Richard Linklater, you know, and it's like these people that kind of, I think that a lot of like, we're looking at human experience, but like also trying to show it through a cinematic lens and all yeah. is one of them for sure. Whoa. I love that it get. I love that. I mean, maybe in our storytelling of it, but it can, you can trace it back to you going every Friday night and just, and just, you know, consuming these images and the thriller thing, the fact that there are filmmakers behind it. That's maybe a, maybe a moment that's, that's, but then how does it try? It seems you can decide that this is the thing you want to be doing. How does it actually happen? What's the moment when you felt you were a filmmaker? You know, I mean, it, I mean, like it was constantly happening. Um, you know, it's a lot of work. And I think like there's a lot of moments where I was like, oh, I'm a filmmaker. And then I would feel like not a filmmaker after that. I mean, I can think of like Michelle Satter and Lynn Arabak calling me 
when I was roofing a house in Seminole, Oklahoma. I didn't have a cell phone at the time. I had to borrow my dad's cell phone just to get this call from Sundance Institute telling me I got into the director's, the writer's lab. Um, that, you know, it's all like very surreal. And you constantly, I think that there's a couple of things. I think that the recipe of me that made this happen, which is like, I'm not afraid to fail. Um, I, I don't take criticism too hard. Like I actually learn from it and I don't stop. Like I, like, like I knew I wanted to do this and I had a, I had an art teacher in high school that told me, he said, um, he's still around Richard Billingsley. He told me, he said, um, whatever you do, don't have a backup plan. Like if you want to be an art, cause I wanted to be a painter. He was like, if you want to, he was like, if you, if you want to be an artist, he's like, do it and don't have a backup plan or you'll end up teaching like I am. Um, Ooh, wow. And wow. I just took that. I was like, I'm never going to, this is what I'm going to do. Like I'm going to yeah. keep, keep going. It's uh, I want to hear more about Oklahoma because it's, what does it, what does it get apart from your daughter with it? I really want to, hear that poem as well but what does it give you in in storytelling terms or cinematic terms you know uh i realized i don't know man it's so unique and it's like there's a few things so i grew up in a in rural oklahoma in a town called holdenville and that gave me this i don't know like the relationship between human beings and the woods and the forest there you know, it was always like, there's magic there. There's these beings or there's this, you know, native cult, like native lore. And it's like, oh, there's, you know, be careful. The dear lady could be, you know, like, or like we had, you know, just all of this like superstition and lore. And like, to me, the, like, it's very truthful and like just the way that I grew up and it was magic to me. And the, I had this like great giant community. And if you watch Reservation Dogs, like that's what it is. It's about a whole community. It's not about four kids. And it just keeps expanding, you know, and, and and for me, that's what life was. And I, any given time, I could be playing with my cousins or I could be at the kitchen table listening to uncles and aunts talk about these stories and these, these scary stories or these magical stories. And that just really like took hold in me. And I, it's just like, it is me. And it just became, it just came, became everything to me. And so, you know, on top of that, like on a practical level, it's like you can drive, in any direction right now, like 20 miles and you're going to be to a hundred miles and you're going to be in a, a different tribal territory. And right now, especially in the summer, every tribal, every tribe here, there's 32 tribes in Oklahoma, every tribe here during the summer, every weekend, somebody or multiple places are having dances or ceremonies or festivals. And so you just like have this really interesting universe of tribal activity happening in a really small piece of land in the middle of America. And also one thing that I try to capture in the show is I think people would think, oh, you're from the South or, or, or the Midwest or whatever. Like I bet there's a lot of racism and you know, there's racism everywhere, but there is like, I grew up with white kids. I grew up with black kids in, in rural Oklahoma and we all knew, know how to, get along and talk to each other. And there was a mutual respect that I grew up with. I never felt different. And that to me was really beautiful. It was, it's the cross cultural 
mixing and and exchange that happens here that that I try to capture and that like made it so interesting for me growing up you know wow that's amazing and really unusual not to feel I mean for anyone and I find particularly artists filmmakers most people feel like outsiders and that's part of what what informs the the work so to have it I mean, from don't that- get me wrong i felt like an outsider too <laughs> <laughs> i mean like as far as like that you know i mean like here's another interesting part of my family's story you know uh with the u.s government there was a policy called the urban relocation act basically like the government said like we have this policy or these this program where native people can leave their home and come to the city where you can get a job in a factory and it was like, oh, cool. Like, we'll give you a stipend. Like, you can come. We'll hook you up with a job. My grandma and all of my uncles and aunts did that. And they all ended up in Chicago. That's why you have these, like, sort of hubs of Native communities in big cities like L.A., Oakland, mm, uh, Chicago. Right. And, you know, it was it was this way of the government saying, like, you know, we're going to help you out. But really, it was to pull them out of tribal communities so they assimilate. And it breaks up that, that community, breaks right. up the communal spirit of those people. Luckily, my grandma and my aunts and uncles moved back home after a few years, but my grandma met an Italian man in Chicago and fell in love, got pregnant, got married, um, had my mom and my uncle there, and then brought him back home. And he ended up like this Italian guy that was born in New York, raised in Chicago, ended up growing up in rural Oklahoma with a bunch of Indians (laughs) and like had had, like Indian children all of his friends were Indian, like, and, you know, everyone in his whole atmosphere were these native people. And I don't know, like it, it, it made a really interesting family dynamic, you know, like we were really proud of being Italian, you know, like everyone in my family is like, Oh, we great. We make great spaghetti and also Indian tacos <laughs> and fry bread, you know? Like, so I don't know. It gave me a different perspective, but having said that with that, if I'm, if I'm in a place where it's all uh, native, and no one's mixed yeah i definitely am like a mixed kid i'm half white you know so like there i think growing up there was always that of like you know like where does that place me a little bit you know so i always felt like i was and i and and at the same time my my dad's uh, mother and my aunt who also raised me part of the time old white ladies and (laughs) you know they lived in a funeral home old funeral home and so it was like fucking haunted and like (laughs) it was just like these two old white women that lived together that raised me as well and so I had this crazy mix of like growing up that I, I find really interesting, which sort of led to, I think, storytelling. You know? Yeah. What a God. Although this feeding your imagination is so, it's so rich. I wanted to ask you a question about storytelling, partly because of thinking about Long Goodbye and what, how it's unusual storytelling. There is a story there, but it's also about so much about behavior and groups and, and, and so on. It has a, a really unexpected beginning and a really unexpected ending. When, when I was at Sundance, we talk about with people like Bird Running Water and Adam Perone and, uh, you know, amazing people there, but is there something, is there something particular about indigenous storytelling and that's a big term which is different to the classical western storytelling of you know the kind of three-act structure and the hero how would you describe indigenous storytelling if that even makes sense i mean i think that we play with all types of storytelling but i think that you're right in that like inherently i mean westerns are about the lone rider 
it's 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 about it's about lifting yourself up from your bootstraps. It's about uh, individualism. Whereas I think indigenous storytelling is about community. Right. It's about community is character. It's about feeding that community. It's about leaving that community or coming back to it. And that to me is what I like to focus on. And like, that's poetic to me as opposed to like, I'm going to strike it out alone. You know, it's like, where do I, where, how can I be a, later, a leader, but also like be a part of this greater community and this greater good, I think, you know? And I think too, there's a level of like, there's acceptance, but there's also in a community, you have to behave a certain way. If you are hurting people, you're going to get stopped. You know, like you're, you're kept in check a little bit and you're watched a little bit more and you know better and you've been raised right and you know that you shouldn't be a certain way. And I think there's a, there's a level of like uh, natural policing that goes on as well in, in community. And, and, and you have to be like, I don't know, like you, your actions affect, you know, you know, the people personally that your actions affect. It's less about, I think, going off and doing your own thing and being by yourself. Even people that go off and, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of talk about like, you know, when you go off to college and you do these things, everyone always talks about, well, then you come back though to help. Like you always, you always come back, you go learn and then you come back to help here, you know? Mm. I just, it makes me think about the, you know, we say that thing about we are the stories we tell. And if you have a a certain range of stories that have never been funded and certain perspectives from people who have never been funded or represented until, until recently, then we've, we've kind of lost something. We've lost it. We've lost the possibility of understanding a different way of being. So when the story structure is always like, there's an individual who wants something that he can't get and then there's a conflict and then he probably gets it. It's like that, that informs how we live in a certain way and what our expectations are. So I, I always found that interesting about what the possibilities were of starting with community. You know, with Reservation Dogs, I, I always knew that I could do Reservation Dogs. Like that was the project. I didn't know what it was yet, but like from the beginning is what I was always trying to do. And I always felt like I was like in a, in another room down the hall or like a kid in the back of the class, like raising my hand going like, I know what to do. Like, right. I know what to do, you know? And I'm so thankful that I got to do it because I think the, the, there, it's not like, like, cause like you talk about like other perspectives and things. It's not that everyone's good at this. Like right. you don't want the wrong people telling this story cause they're going to lie too. You know, like, like there has to be some, some sort of vetting because like, I don't know, like I, I could, I like, there's another version of this where they made a show about a native community and it wasn't truthful. And it was like, everyone looked like they were in Yellowstone wearing cowboy hats and bolo ties and jeans. And, and, you know, like there was that, there's that version. And to some people like that is what it is, but like, I don't think that's truthful. Like I think. Truthful is like Willie Jack wearing slides and basketball shorts and, you know, like talking about the, the local cop and what a shit ass he is, whatever, you know, like that is <laughs> truthful to me. And I, I'm just thankful that I was able to do it because like the big thing that I wanted to do always in my work, but with this, I think it's most successful. is like, I wanted to strike this tone because I think indigenous storytelling and and the tone in which that is is sad and it's funny it's dark and it's light and it's always playing with that 
you know, and, and to me, that's what I wanted to capture. And I think that in, in, in someone else's hands, maybe, I mean, there's a lot of people that could do this as well, but like in the wrong hands, they might not want to show our darkness that much. Right. And to right. me, that's, that's just as bad as like a white person or whatever, making a really bad representation, you know, like that's, that's us policing ourselves and not telling the truth. And I think that's just as bad or worse. Yeah. Okay. Should we, so what do you think? Lightning you round, lightning round. This is this Tabitha's favorite part. It is, because I love this, because I don't know what we're going to get with these answers. So, Sterling Harjo, what is the weirdest thing that has ever happened to you in a cinema? Oh, shit. I think that I had a... Oh, okay. I was watching Boyhood, mm. and this is a good, good weird. Okay. I was watching Boyhood, and I was with my daughter, and, you know, she and... Uh, and her, her, her mom and I divorced, um, you know, years before and like we're co-parenting and, uh, we're watching boyhood and there's so much in that film. We're in Austin, Texas. I'm sitting next to my daughter. And there's so much of that film that reminded me of our, of us, of our life from the mom, the dad, the relationship with the kids, everything, little things like that. We kept looking at each other and like kind of mouths dropped a lot. And then, you know, like three weeks before to a month before or so we watched it, my daughter told me, the song that will always remind me of you is L.A. Freeway by Guy Clark, because you always sing and play it. And it's kind of like your mantra, you know, it's about leaving L.A. It's like the chorus is like, like, if I could only get off this L.A. Freeway without getting killed or caught, you know, (laughs) and um but uh, so I always play on guitar and sing it. She said that. And when we're watching this film, our mouths have been open the whole time. Just like kind of un- un- like couldn't believe it. Ethan Hawke is taking his kids camping and he pulls over side of the road and he says, listen, we can't do this. Like we can't talk like meaningless black. Like we got to like have meaningful conversations. And I, I can relate to that because you get in this rhythm of not of your kid. You're like, I'm not really talking to them. You got to really remind right. yourself. Uh, well, then they go camping, and, and he's in silhouette in this tent, and he's playing guitar, and he's playing L.A. Freeway. And I mean, like, I almost <laughs> fell out of my chair. She did, too. And it was just like, we talked about it forever. I told Ethan Hawke about it. We work together now. I told, <laughs> I told Ethan Hawke about it. It was pretty amazing. And that's that what is mo- movies can do that, you know. Art and life. Man, art and life. That's beautiful. Okay, Cooper, what you got? So he, he kind of answered it like, was there another film besides this one that you were that you thought as a choice for this? Was there another film that yeah, you, something you wild, liked? something yeah, wild something wild was the one, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I don't know, like it's 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 such a uh, I think tonally, like I like films that take me somewhere tonally, you know. And it is a film that I can watch over and over as well and kind of catch new things. Like, like uh, Demi does so. M- so many great things with like background characters, you know, like you just see these things, people in the background, like a whole story is happening in the background, you know, which is interesting. Whereas like Altman, I love Altman too, because what he does is like, he almost like highlights the background. Mm. And then the story, the story is more in the background, right? Like the story is not up front center. It's like the background is up front center and the behavior but the story is like underneath all of that, you know, which I love that. I love that. You know? That's what, especially um, in so his you, ensemble movies where there's so many characters, it's all about, they're all in the background and all in the foreground at the same time. 
Yeah, exactly. He said, I'm not particularly interested in stories. There are like six or seven of them. I'm interested in behavior and I'm interested in putting something on screen that we've never seen before. Right. I think like that's that's what I more and more, more and more I do that's what I fall into. And I think like if if you remember seeing if you just you know think of like what this whenever if you ever watched the finale of the season three, because I I definitely, you know, use this idea where like I had all of these characters and like there's little hints and bits of story that are happening. But it's very quick and like everything else is the behavior and kind of like what people aren't saying to each other and things like that. So Yeah. Oh, Sterling Harjo, what an absolute treat to listen to you. Thank you for having me. We enjoyed, we enjoyed having it's you. It's been so fun. What a great podcast. Like I love the idea of like picking one movie and talking about it. You made us. You've made us understand film. You've made us understand Oklahoma, even and it's the craziness of Oklahoma because I know it's different. And now I understand shit ass. So what more could we want? Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. We're all just a shit ass. <laughs> all right. That's right. Bunch of shit asses. <laughs> this interview was recorded prior to the WGA and SAG after strikes. We proudly support the people who work to create these stories and bring them to the screen. If you'd like to share the film that blew your mind, send us an email to stories at thefilmthatblewmymind.com. The Film That Blew My Mind is hosted by me, John Cooper. And me, Tabitha Jackson. Our executive producer is Jessica Buzzard. The show is produced by Goat Rodeo, and to find more of their work, go to goatrodeodc.com. Com. Executive producers at Goat Rodeo are Megan Nadalski and Ian Enright. Creative producers are Max Johnston, Isabel Kirby McGowan, Rebecca Seidel, and Jay Venables. Marketing and publicity by Stephen Raphael and Required Viewing. Mixing and engineering by Rebecca Seidel. Intro music from Wayne Jones. And illustrations by Brandon Leithhead. Special thanks to Trevor Groth. Kirsten Chalker, John Nine, and especially Christine Buzzard. Also to all our friends and family who put up with us and our crazy projects. Aww. If you like this episode, why don't you subscribe to stay up to date on new ones? And maybe leave us a rating and a review. Oh, and if you have any left, tell your friends. <laughs>